All right. We are going to continue on in the... Um, and by the way, some of you last week... Well, let me back up. i got too many thoughts going through my head. Do we have light that's like coming through weird? working through are the first nine pages of this booklet, um, How to Study the Bible. Um, some of you last week or two times ago, two weeks ago, told me that you would like this electronically, and I can give this to you electronically. If you go into H3, you must have this electronically, um, and I forgot who you were, if you told me you wanted it. So if before today is over, can you just come up to me, and, and I'm going to write down um, in, in my inside cover who wants this. So it would give you the nine pages that you have in front of you, but it's going to give you all the way to page 60 also, or 61 or whatever it is, okay? But um, there's all kinds of exercises in here that go along with that. So we're going to kind of pick back up. Let's, though, before we do that, I want to read the quote to you, and then I want to pray, and we'll, uh, we'll get after it. This is from... Um, House's uh, Old Testament theology, and uh, we're going to touch on this a little bit later this morning. Uh, it says, though Old Testament theology, in other words, that's just what you derive from the Old Testament about what it says about who God is. Okay. All, uh, though Old Testament theology has a close relationship to the New Testament, the two have discrete witnesses of their own. Okay. So there's always this balance between we have one Bible, we have two Testaments. There's going to be times where you're going to talk and it's going to sound like you're, if you think when somebody's emphasizing that there are two Testaments, if you hear them in your mind saying, it sounds like they're saying there's two Bibles, that's a problem. There's one Bible, but it comes in two Testaments. And so what he's trying to say here is that there's, they both have their own discrete witnesses. Um, Therefore, Old Testament theology must state the Old Testament's unique message before incorporating the New Testament's perspective. The ultimate goal is still to produce biblical theology, what the theology says overall about the Bible, or what the Bible says overall about God, proper theology. Yet, to unite the Testaments at the proper moment. That is probably one of the most helpful important sentences you'll ever know in terms of how to use your Bible. There are discrete witnesses. The Old Testament has a unique witnessing of who God is. The New Testament has its own unique. You let the Old Testament say what the Old Testament says about God, and you let the New Testament say about God what the New Testament says about God, and at the proper moment, you what? Unite them. The tendency is to do not at the proper moment. This procedure is on sound historical, canonical, and exegetical grounds and will make scriptural unity plainer than starting from the opposite end of the canon. And this is what most of us do because we're more familiar with the New Testament. So we take everything the New Testament says and in our minds we push it all the way back into Genesis. And we think that everything the New Testament says about God was said in Genesis. And it wasn't. And this is where we talked a little bit last time about, well, when do you get to Jesus Christ? If the whole thing is about Jesus, when and how do you get to Jesus when you're in the Old Testament? You get to Jesus at the proper moment. 
and not a second sitter. Okay? It will also help um, the Old Testament's unique value for theology be clear. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means and what it doesn't mean. How you, how you get to Jesus in the Old Testament, how you do it is everything. We're going to get to Jesus. You have to get to Jesus. We are Christians. Full revelation has come that ends in, at the end of Revelation, and you need to talk about who Jesus is. Um, how you do it is everything. Okay. So with that in mind, since we want to get to Jesus, we want this to all help us best um, handle the Word of God so that we can make much of Christ in it. Let's pray, and let's even ask for help this morning as we look at um, this helpful tool given to us. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the chance to be together. Lord, thank you for these men who took um, much of their year and many, many Saturdays and set them aside for this time together. I thank you, Lord. I pray that you would bless them, that they would um, walk more closely with you, they would love you, that they would feel better equipped to care for their own hearts, um, that they would feel they have a maybe a stronger platform from which to minister to other men in the church. And I pray, God, that you would continue to help them to shepherd their own hearts, to shepherd their families and their roommates, their household, help them to shepherd people within the body well, help them to strive to be qualified men according to the qualifications given to us in the New Testament, help them to understand the vision and the purpose of this church. And um, God, help them to handle the word of God well so that your sheep can be fed, so they can feed their own hearts. Thank you for SMED and what is going on in H3. We even pray for the men this morning over there who are meeting, that they would, um, as they finish up looking at their passages in preparation to preach, Lord, I pray that it would um, be really fruitful, that they would be amazed at the God who is revealed in the words of Scripture and that they would see you, that they would be drawn to you. Help us do the same this morning as we think about proper interpretation of your word. Um, unite our hearts around these things, our minds around these things. We need you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, back up and let me just walk through where we've been the last uh, from the last time. We started on page three with just the presuppositions that are kind of lying underneath our interpretation. And by the way, everybody has these. You cannot come to Scripture without presuppositions. If you do not believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you will interpret it differently. You, it, will, it will determine how you will interpret it. If you believe the Bible actually is the Word of God, is infallible, inerrant, um, well, then that will determine how you look at it as well. So we just talked about what those presuppositions were. And then we moved into section one, principles for interpreting Scripture. We talked about two wrong ways of approaching scripture and trying to interpret them to find the meaning that is in the passage that you're looking at. There's the allegorical method, which for years dominated Christian uh, history, the, the history of the church, and it is a wonder that God preserved the church at all through that. Um, but he did, because he loves the church more than we do, and he loves the gospel more than we do. And then there's kind of the day that we live in, it's the what it means to me, um, method of approaching scripture where really um, the text is not the final authority on what it means I am 
see my experience of what I've been through and how I interact with it when, when, when the synapses fire in my brain on it and there's oh that's I mean, enlightenment comes now all of a sudden authority comes but not before that moment um, what it means before I ever come to it well that's not even an issue it's only what it means when I come to it and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem we talked about that now, the question that I had is, I couldn't remember, did we talk about the right way carefully and normally on page uh, five? I, I, as I looked at it, I don't remember going through that. Just that little paragraph? Did we? Okay. Well, then we're not going to do that again if, if I did. I don't think we did. We don't think we did? I think I stopped there. Yeah, but I got down to principles. Yeah, but why do I, why do I like, completely do not remember the right... Did I tell you to correct 1 Timothy 2.15 to 2 Timothy 2.15? No. Yeah, yeah then I didn't go over it. No, <laughs> let's, let's do it anyway, because it's, it's going to be... It's just the introductory thought going into the 12 principles. The right way to interpret the Bible is to read it carefully and normally. Just carefully and normally. I love that. By the way, that's the grammatical historical interpretation. Is just to be careful with the words, with the syntax, with the way the words and phrases relate to one another, and just to read it normally. Look, do you when when you're reading the newspaper, not that you would, but when you read the newspaper, when you're reading an article um, on the front page, uh, and then you move to maybe flip over to the opinion section and you read an op-ed piece, and then you what are you like casting him out? What is this? We got we got one up here. Come up here over here. Oh, are you sure? All right. Feel badly for you. That's, that's tough. We did not cast him out. You didn't. Just for the record. You didn't. You didn't cut him off from his people. Then when you move, okay, so you move from an article on the news, you move to an op-ed piece, and then you move to. Um, uh, an advertisement or a, a what's the um, classified ads? You move to that, and then you move to the funnies. In, in your mind, you don't go, "Oh, wait a minute! Why I totally missed this cartoon because I was thinking it was a news article." <laughs> no, you know how to switch between different kinds of literature, different genres. You know how to do that, and you read it carefully, and you read each one normally. You look, just do the same thing with the Bible. As you move from a story to poetry to prophecy to Paul teaching, just read it carefully and normally. Okay? It's very simple. Uh, we, 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 we tend to make it a little bit more difficult than it used to be. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15, so it should be 2 Timothy 2.15, commands that we be careful readers of God's word. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. So while not forgetting its unique characteristics, that the word of God is God-breathed, we must let the scripture mean what it means based on what the words say. Now, when I emphasize that, if you're like, dude, that is obvious. Um, I'm so glad that to you it's obvious, but it is not obvious today. I mean, we are living in a day where people are doing weird things with words. Um, where, you know, words don't mean anything anymore. And But words in the Bible mean what the words say. 
Interpretation is not a magical or mysterious process. It is reading carefully and reading normally, not looking for fanciful, allegorical, or personal meanings. Okay? Of course, since the Bible is God's book, to understand it, we must seek God's wisdom. So we plead with him. Psalm 119 18 is a great um, uh, verse to, to have before you as you get ready to look at God's word. Having sought the necessary grace to handle the divine message, I love this. As a carpenter who measures twice and cuts once, we must accurately cut straight the words and the sentences of Scripture. Have you ever done that? Cut once without measuring accurately and then you, yeah, well, you got to start over. But don't do that with God's Word. Measure once and then measure again and then cut once. Okay? And these 12 principles on the following pages are the basic guidelines. And look, there's, there's probably 100 principles that you could break each one of these down into five more each. But we're going to summarize them with these 12. So, what I want you to do is I want you to open actually to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. Luke 1. I want to give you a little um, gentle push on something. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I'm only going to take you from verse 5 to 17. We're not going to read all of it, but I'm just going to point out some key words. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, or Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Let me ask you this question. Where in the Bible did this Aaron pop up? Exodus. Right? From the earliest pages. Um, where does the concept of a priest come up? Exodus. We're there. Okay. Uh, look at verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. What is? Where were the commandments given? Exodus and Leviticus. Um, at Mount Sinai, right? Okay, verse um, 9. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. Where did the temple come into play? The David, Solomon, in, those, in that time period, right? Now, there was a tent before that, which the temple was patterned after. But, yeah, with David and, and Solomon. Look at verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. When 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 do you see an angel of the Lord um in scripture. Wow, from the very earliest times, right? Okay, angels pop up in, in the Bible in the Old Testament. Look down at verse 16. And he will turn many, speaking of um, John the Baptist, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord. Who are the sons of Israel? Where do they come from? And when do they come up in the Bible? Okay. A promise to Abraham there and, and then a, a greater filling out as the as you end Genesis. And then verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. When does Elijah pop up on the scene in the Old Testament? I'll, I'll help you out. First Kings 17. That's when he pops up on the scene. Now, the first chapter of Luke, that's not even the first half, all of the first half of Luke. 
Luke chapter 1 presupposes that you know what? Oh my goodness. Presupposes that you read from the beginning all the way at least up through 1 Kings 17 where Elijah is introduced. So if you want to interpret well Luke chapter 1, you need to know what? Because otherwise when you see priest and you see Aaron, and you see temple, who knows what meanings you're going to import into those words from your own understanding that might not be what was laid out from before. So guys, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. All of it, every year. Do the best you can. I've missed a few days the last couple weeks, and I'm just going to miss a few days these last couple weeks. But you know what? I'm going to count on that, Lord willing, I'm going to get to read it again next year, and I'm going to read it again next year, and I'm going to read it again next year because the, wherever you're at, it presupposes that you read what was before it. So this is a huge part. It's not outlined in 12 principles of interpretation, but guys, read your Bibles, all of it. Okay? It'll help you immensely. Okay? All right. Let's start off. Number one, the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. That is the first principle or the first rule of interpretation. <coughs> Above the word interpretation there are the 12 principles of interpretation. You can write hermeneutics. That's what interpretation means. It's the rules of hermeneutics, the principles of hermeneutics. And the clarity of Scripture is the first one. The Bible can be understood because God meant for it to be understood. When was the last time you wrote a note to your wife, your roommate, your child, your parents, and you actually wanted to confuse them. You didn't want them to understand what you did. <laughs> Nobody does that. We write, well, songwriters do that. They write songs and we have, why did they do that? I don't know. Bosses sometimes do that too. Who does? Bosses. Bosses, yeah. Okay. All right. So God wrote, not to confuse, but to make clear. He says, I am the Lord in Isaiah 45, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret. In some dark land, I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is famous. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. That presupposes that what he actually reveals, they can understand it and obey it. So not everything in the Bible is easy to understand. Peter says that in 2 Peter about whose writings? Paul's. There are some things that are hard to understand. However, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 indicates, God revealed his word to be understood and lived, obeyed. The revealed things, the words of the law, they are ours and we are supposed to obey them, um, he would say to the Israelites. That means we study God's word expecting to discover a coherent message. When we do... Oh, no, wait, just stop for a second. Guys... How many times, maybe even you have said, you know, I just read, but it's just, it, it's the Old Testament, it's just confusing. Yeah, you know, it's challenging. But if you put the work in and you're dependent upon God as you read, you'll see a coherent message. When we do come across theologically obscure passages, we must give precedence to clear sections of Scripture that address that issue. Okay? I want to tell you something that is just absolutely amazing to me. It is. It is evidence of God's work in, in my family. Um, I got saved about 25 years ago. And the first person I shared the gospel with was my mom because I, I was living at home. I was still with her. And 
and um, my parents were divorced. And I got up the next morning and I shared the gospel with her. I was convinced because we were like this, that she was going to repent and believe also. And as soon as I shared it with her, she rejected instantaneously, immediately, completely the gospel. And um, it has been that way for about 20 years. Well, she, I've seen softening, and she's in town visiting. Um, and we were in our kitchen yesterday talking, and um, I was talking about um, New Tribes missions, uh, the Tartaglias in Papua New Guinea, and that Cass is over there. And, and uh, I talked to her about what they do in terms of uh, learning, you know, putting the language of the tribe in uh, words. Um, so it's written and not just oral, and then they actually translate the Bible and they start from Genesis. They don't start with Jesus, they start at Genesis, and they, they work through and they tell the story, and by the time you get to Jesus crucified, at least the Nebu tribe, they were ready. God had prepared their heart. And out of nowhere, as I'm sharing this with my mom, she says, you know what, I've been reading the Bible, and I'm in Proverbs now. I had no idea. She didn't tell me she was. We talk on the phone. You know, they live in Nebraska. And... and um, She's, she lives in the promised land, so that's she got that going for her. <laughs> so, um, anyway, she, and I said, you mean you started in Genesis? And she said, yeah. And um, she, and this, this is the interesting point. This is the point. She said, I have friends at home. And she, as far as I know, I don't think she has any believing friends. But she has friends who say, yeah, I just don't know how that many different books, that many different authors could, you know, that anybody could even understand what the message of it is. And she said this. She said, you know what I've found as I've read it? I have found that even though that it's written by different people over a long period of time, um, that there's one message that's the same throughout all of it. My mom said that. My mom is defending the coherency of the Old Testament to friends who don't believe the Old Testament. So, look, it can be understood. And then she immediately started talking about how there's lots of things in Job she didn't understand, some things in Psalms that she didn't understand. Look, that doesn't mean you understand everything that's said, but there's a coherent message. And um, it's there, guys. And God, it's there because God meant it to be clear when he wrote it, just like you mean to be understood when you speak, when you write. Let's just give God the same courtesy, shall we? Um, number two, accommodation of Revelation. Accommodation. That just means that God accommodates what's he, what he's revealing to our intellect, to our level. He accommodates. God revealed his truth in terms that human beings can understand. Thank God. What's the biggest proof that God did this? I'll tell you what the biggest proof is. That the scripture was written in well-known human languages like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Common, very well-known languages in the world at the time that those languages existed. He did not pick some obscure dialect and tongue and something up in some remote hillside that 40 people spoke, but nobody else. He picked the common trade language that everybody spoke. Why did he do that? Because he wanted everybody to understand them. Okay, what does this say about our God? You get it? God wants to be understood. He accommodated. When it speaks of infinite or divine concepts, it does so in terms we can relate to. That's accommodation. Terms we can relate to. 
For example, Second Chronicles 16.9 says, God's eyes move throughout the earth. Right? That doesn't mean that God the Father, a spirit being, has physical eyes. He doesn't. But God knew that eyesight is the most perceptive of the human senses, therefore he described his infinite perceiving abilities that way. Accommodation means God stoops to our level, describing himself in ways we can understand. Praise God that he did. Mike. Um, I have a friend, like when we go through Genesis, he looks at the first few verses as God describing something that we can't comprehend. When he's talking about moving over the surface of the deep, he doesn't think that it actually means the ocean of the earth. Uh, when he's accommodating something, does that mean he's actually telling it to us so we can completely comprehend what he was doing, or he's sharing with us something that we can't really understand and, and give us some kind of grasp of it? Uh, the answer is, is yes and no. I mean, when God reveals, is he revealing everything comprehensively about himself? No. And what he did. No, there's lots of details left out. But what you have to avoid and say, or balance that with is he clearly meant something and it's understandable and so he is revealing enough that we need to know that is necessary for us to know to be able to live for him, follow him repent towards him, believe in him grasp that his son was coming, etc so yes he, he accommodated there are some things that we won't be able to understand perfectly and you have to always ask what is happening in each genre you're reading uh, especially in narrative, um, you're telling a story. Um, you're just relaying historical facts. It's an eyewitness account. And um, so, yeah, you don't find there a lot of mystical meaning going on in narrative accounts. Let's talk about number three. One meaning of a text. How many meanings in a text? One. One meaning in a text. Although a text may have many different applications, it has only one meaning. The meaning of the original human author who was moved by the Holy Spirit. That is a, a very, very important um, sentence. Uh, this, he gives a very simple example here. Um, the command, do not steal. <clears throat> For the ten-year-old, that might apply, circle that word, that might apply to shoplifting, a candy bar. For an adult, it might apply, circle that word, to doing non-work-related activities while his employer is paying him to work. Those are two different applications, circle that word. However, there is only one, what? Meaning to that text. Don't take something that is not yours or not yours to use in that way. Okay, very important. Yeah, Bill. How about like uh, Psalm 2 and being a coronation psalm for the king and then yes. also a messianic psalm? That is a whole uh, different animal on its own. <laughs> Where the New Testament then uses the Old Testament and fills out the Old Testament, the, the, the raging debate is, um, are there more than one, is there more than one meaning? And you still have to start with when, when David wrote... What did David mean? And you have to do the best you can before you start at the right time, proper time, incorporating further revelation, progressive revelation in. So you still want to start there and ask yourself, what did David mean by what David said to the people that he was writing to? Start there. And that's not going to solve everything. But um, 
for our purposes here, there's there's not an easy answer for the way that the New Testament writers <coughs> use Old Testament passages. Those are, however, I'll tell you this: you cannot hold New Testament writers to the same interpretation principles that you are bound by, because when they are writing, they're not merely interpreting; they are being inspired. Amen. So their use of the Old Testament is an inspiration issue, not an interpretation issue. There are people who will tell you, there are branches of the church and evangelicalism that will tell you, look, all we need to do is observe what the apostles are doing with the Old Testament, and then we can do the same thing. It's called the apostolic hermeneutic. We just watch what they did with scripture, and then we do the same. We interpret the same. Okay, somebody list for me what the rules are that the apostles used. And please, start in Matthew and tell me and watch what Matthew does with one text, quoting from Hosea, and then tell me what he does with another text when he's quoting from Isaiah, and is it the same thing both times? And how do you know what the rules are if enough I come and say, well, it looks like actually he might be doing a different rule. How do we know that my interpretation of his rules are the same as yours? I mean, where's the, how do, where does it ultimately land out? And that's trying to debate it in all of the wrong ways because it's not an interpretation issue of what Matthew's doing. It's an inspiration thing. What is he doing with those Old Testament passages? Is he alluding to it without trying to directly quote it and flesh it out and provide exegesis for it? Or is he trying to fully lay it all out for us? I mean, there's all kinds of questions. The best person that I've heard on this subject is Don Carson. If you go to the Gospel Coalition website... It is thegospelcoalition.org. And you search for he has, he has like 400 different sermons of his on there. Just start looking for like biblical theology or interpretation, and you can listen to some excellent, excellent sermons on um, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. He is so smart. The, the proof of a smart guy is he is able to take very complex subjects, and he can put them on the bottom shelf, and you can get them. And you can. He's very helpful with that. So that's a whole other branch of dealing with interpretation. Um, yeah. Can you just define interpretation and expiration? Inspiration. Just explain that. I know that yeah. a little bit, but I want to hear you say that. Interpretation is you're looking for the meaning in a text. And you're letting the author's meaning um, stand as the meaning. Um, we talked about that before. If you're hanging from an edge of a cliff and you say, give me a hand, <laughs> right? I, what matters is not what I think that means, but what matters is what you meant by it, right? So if I stand over and I start clapping <laughs> and you fall to your peril, um, well, I took what I thought it meant but I didn't pay attention. I didn't interpret your words correctly. You're looking for the meaning that is bound up in the words, and it's all because of what the and it's all uh, tied to what the author meant. That's interpretation. That's hermeneutics. Um, inspiration is God breathing out His mind, His revelation, His will through a human author. God is not interpreting something. He is inspiring something. And inspiration is not like what we think of, well, man, that artist was really inspired to write that song. That is not what God was doing. 
not this feeling of or movement to do something really impressive. No, God inspiring is speaking, making clear, breathing out of his own existence what he wants to reveal. That's not interpretation. God's not interpreting something. He is creating something. He's making his will clear (coughs) through a a human author to the readers of the human author's words. So that's how I would understand those two things. So did you sum it up one's creative, one's more observational? Yeah. One is something that you and I do not do. The other is something we do do. (laughs) So make sure you get the right ones in order. Daniel. So let me come back to this one meaning. Yeah. I've read different things on this, right, with with the dual authorship, right? I mean, if Mm -hmm. we're saying God is inspiring this, then is it possible that he's saying something here that the human author doesn't quite understand? And, you know, so there's something, like you're saying with David, there's something the human author is saying and understands, and there's something God's saying that maybe the human author doesn't completely understand. Sure. How do we... Yeah, that is possible. There's, there's certainly no doubt that um, a writer mm-hmm. might not understand everything that God is saying. Um, however, you're, you're still, the only place to begin is that he does understand. And not in totality, but that he... he that, that it's not a mystery, that he spoke words, he's clueless about what he just said, but boy, God meant something, I'm sure. I mean, that we don't want to be there, obviously. And, and, and th- this is clear in... Um, Peter makes this clear. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter 1, 10. God made those prophets, he made them work for understanding what they wrote. It wasn't just like, oh, no, no, you guys don't understand. There's going to be a guy, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, his name's going to be Jesus. Uh, he's going to be, uh, at the age of 30-ish or so, he's going to enter into public ministry. Uh, the, the religious leaders are going to reject him, crucify him. He's going to be buried from the dead. Uh, he's going to be buried, rise from the dead. And then there's going to be this thing called the church that gets formed. And, you know, no. It wasn't like it was that clear. And yet it was clear enough that Jesus could rebuke his disciples and say, didn't you believe everything that was written in the Old Testament? So was it clear or wasn't it? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. Okay, um, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries. They wouldn't do that if they understood what it meant in its entirety. Seeking to know what person or time, but they did know enough that it was a person. Because they wanted to know the person or the time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ. They knew that Messiah was going to suffer. So what did they know? They knew plenty. And the glories to follow. It was revealed to them. It was revealed to them. It was revealed to them. Don't leapfrog over that. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Angels are curious about what's going on in this revelation. Okay? So, yeah, there's. it would be foolish for us to say that an Old Testament writer understood everything. We're going to get to that here in a little bit. But it would be equally as foolish to say that therefore that means there's two meanings. The one that the author would have understood himself, but it's different from the one that God meant. Okay. 
Yeah. Another example of that would be Caiaphas, where he says it's expedient for one man to die for the people. Yeah. And uh, where the He had no office. idea what he was saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking in the office. Yeah. yeah. Number four, harmony of scripture. Great questions, guys. Even though written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 human authors, the Bible agrees with itself amazingly so, or actually not so amazingly, when you consider its own divine author, God. Because the scripture was spoken by the God who knows everything and never lies, the Bible does not contradict itself. This is what I was talking about with my mom and, and her observation. However, there is a danger lurking in this principle. We must avoid the practice of determining what we believe based on one text and then forcing every other passage to harmonize with that view. That leads to bad, even dishonest theology. Let me, let me give an example of what he means by that. Let me um, give you two things that in our minds seem diametrically opposed and cannot exist simultaneously. Does God hate sinners or does God love sinners? Well, let me help you understand. Go to Psalm 5. Please. <laughs> Psalm 5. Quickly, we're going to let God's words say what God's words say. And we're going to take the meaning from those words. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, David says. You, God, hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man the man of bloodshed and deceit. How about Psalm 11.5? The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. But, John 3.16, John 3.16, John 3.16! God shall love the world! So that can, see, what people do, what Christians do is, that can't be, that's not what God means. God God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. That's what that... Is that what it means? No. So what we're saying is there is a harmony in Scripture that sometimes it's going to appear to you from your little finite brain that that cannot be true while this is true. And so what our temptation is, wrongly so, is to change what this means to make it fit what this means. So God doesn't actually hate sinners. He actually loves sinners because he does over here. You know how you solve this? Go to the cross. Go to the cross. Because what do you find at the cross? You find God's hatred and his what? Love perfectly existing together as he judges his son, forsakes his son, and loves you. There's, you don't need to harmonize him. Well, because God did. It can happen. That God can hate the sinner and love the sinner. One of the other things that it does, unfortunately, is it makes people say, one of the ways they try to resolve it is, well, actually, the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. When you hear that, you tighten your sneakers up and you run. (laughs) (laughs) Number five, normal interpretation. Here's another, let me give you another example um, of, of the harmony of Scripture where we try to harmonize everything to the point where we flatten it out. It doesn't mean any of it. Um, is God responsible for evil or not? Um, if God is good, how can evil happenings be de- ascribed to him? 
Uh, well, I'll let you chill now when you figure that one out. But if it says that in one spot and then in another spot says something about the holiness of God, and I mean, and, and it was so funny is the uh, is it is it in Hosea? Uh, no, it's Habakkuk. Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Oh my goodness, we quote the first half of that verse all the time. And if you quote the rest of it, he's actually saying, but what are you doing through these guys, these evil people to your own people? You're, you're, it looks to me like you're doing something evil, God. So let you got to figure out, you got to wrestle with that. Don't try to flatten everything out. If it says one thing, one place, let it say what it says. Let it say what it says in another place. And if you can't explain it in your own mind, that's okay. Don't make God's mind get reduced down to yours because you can't figure out how God would be close to evil but not be evil. Okay? How God could hate and love at the same time because, well, if I can't love and hate at the same time, then I'm not, I'm not going to let God love and hate at the same time. Well, then, you know, what did you just do to the cross? So don't try to harmonize everything, even though there's a coherent message that goes all the way through. Okay? Number five. Normal interpretation. This means we read the Bible following the reading practices we could uh, would consider normal for any other important document. He gives a, a good example here. When the office manager sends the maintenance man a memo instructing him to change the flickering fluorescent globe in the hallway, the maintenance man doesn't need to uh, read a mystical secret meaning about spiritual light into it. He reads the memo normally, and he fetches a new globe and a stepladder. That's normal interpretation, and we need to read our Bibles that way too. Normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech. Okay, nobody else's opinion matters about the author's words more than the author's opinion about his words. Here's what I want you to write down off into the side of this right here. I'm going to put it in the form of a question for you. What warrants you in the text to come to that conclusion? What warrants you in the text to conclude that? Something like that. That's what you need to ask. What warrants me? The minute you say, oh, well, that can't be literal, it has to be figurative. The first question you ask is, what warrants me in the text to make that conclusion? Because what are you doing? You are chaining yourself down to the author, and you're saying, well, the, the author has to give me some indication here that he doesn't mean it literally, but figuratively. Or maybe he actually does mean it literally, and I just thought he meant it figuratively, but I'm not going to go figurative unless he gives me indication in his words that I should go figurative. Okay? In other words, it's not up to me to determine if it's figurative. It's up for the author to determine if it's figurative. And most of those will solve themselves right in the context. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges. We naturally understood that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds examined the literal meaning, find it unlikely, and accept it as a figure of speech. And we do that based on what we see in, his, in that context there. However, this is interesting, and this is a good point. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, it is good policy to begin with the literal. In other words, what is a door? What purpose does a door serve? Having asked that, then we ask, what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? The literal function of a door suggests the meaning of, a, of the figure. So the literal function suggests the meaning of the figure. Jesus is the gateway to eternal life. Number six, context. 
One of the most important summary statements ever made regarding Bible interpretation is context determines meaning. <coughs> this means that a text of scripture is given its true meaning only when it is considered in relationship to the words around it. And I am so happy that he put this in here because this actually goes back to the days when Joel and I used to hang out together. Um, he would ask me, we would goof around with this kind of thing all the time, he would say, well, what are you going to do? I would say, I'm going to do nothing. And he'd say, well, how do you justify that? Philippians 2, 3, 8. Do nothing. <laughs> and he actually put it in here. I can't believe it. For example, Philippians 2, 3, 8 says, do nothing. Is that justification for laziness? No. Now, this is absurd, of course, right? The rest of the verse says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So when the words surrounding do nothing are considered, it is clear what Paul is not condoning, right? Another example, Philippians 4, 6, he came up with this one. Be anxious for nothing. So take all of the words. Now, that's a very simple, ridiculous example, but I'll tell you what. You need to do that with a whole sentence or a whole verse or a whole paragraph. You need to pay attention to what's around it, okay? By quoting only a portion of the text, we can completely upend the obvious meaning of the text not considering the context would have led us to disobey God, actually, if we applied our interpretation. Um, go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. I want you to see this. This is good, too. A good example in narrative of what not to do and what to do. Isaiah 1, 10. Suppose you were trying to do a little study on Sodom and Gomorrah for a uh, for a Bible study, and let's suppose that you haven't read much of the Old Testament. Oh yeah, I know it's in the Old Testament that, that story. That's when God rained down fire uh, in the Old Testament. I remember that. Um, but I need to get some more information, so I'm going to just go to a concordance and look up Sodom and Gomorrah. <coughs> and you look up Sodom and Gomorrah, and oh Isaiah one ten. Okay, so I'm going to tell people what I think is Sodom and Gomorrah is all about. And then you hear, uh, you read this in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? And you say, and you come back and you teach in your Bible, say, gosh, you know what, these, they were sacrificing in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God was really upset about the way they were sacrificing in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, let's turn to the next page. And so then you move them on. Um, that's very interesting. Because the thing you didn't do is you didn't pay attention to the words around. You didn't pay attention to context. Okay. Um, to whom was God speaking? Based on that verse alone, you would conclude that God was addressing Sodom and Gomorrah, but now read the context. Verse 1 says, Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who lived 1,400 years after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 3 says, Isaiah was proclaiming God's word to Israel. Verse 8 uses the terminology, daughter of Zion, an Old Testament phrase referring to Jerusalem. And then look at verse 9 in particular. Here's the interpretive key. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. You see, the text, the context, determined the meaning for us. I didn't have to go find it or uh, determine it myself. I just had to find it there where it was. Um, Context is important. Isaiah was making a comparison between Jerusalem of his day and Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities destroyed over a thousand years before. So context is important. If you'd only picked up verse 10, you would have concluded Isaiah chapter 1 is about Sodom and Gomorrah. 
your interpretation would have been embarrassingly inaccurate. Reading the context gives you the true picture. Context determines meaning. So some questions you can ask when you're in a particular passage, and this is always the right thing to do, no matter where you are, is who's writing? Who's writing? Because that will root you immediately historically. Isaiah. Oh, I know who that was. That's the time of these four kings. Uh, Paul was writing. Oh, I know exactly when that was. That was, you know, at period of Acts and the, the church being founded. That'll keep you locked into a time period of where you need to be. To whom was he writing? Uh, Isaiah was writing to exiles, or he was writing to those who had not yet been taken into captivity. Uh, Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus. So that's that locks me in. Is there a specific situation addressed in the text that shapes the interpretation? You, you ask those kinds of questions and it saves you. Um, he uses Jeremiah 29.11. Oh my goodness, a favorite for us. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. This verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers everywhere. However, even a cursory examination of Jeremiah 29 shows that this was part of a letter sent by Jeremiah to the Jews who lived um, exiled in Babylon. Reading further, you find that this promise was a part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel in the future. Now, this is very important. The ones to whom Jeremiah was writing and the specific situation, which is exile and promise restoration, it limits the meaning. Limits the meaning. How many meanings are there in a text? How many applications? Could be many. But there's only one meaning. It is definitely not intended by Jeremiah to be a sweeping promise for believers of all ages. Okay, that believers will have an easy and calamity-free passage through life. Uh, Jeremiah himself was hated, harried, thrown in prison, kidnapped, and martyred for his faithful preaching. So the verse didn't even apply to him. Context determines the meaning. Okay. Um, what about if we use that verse recklessly like that? How do you? And all it's going to take is somebody to go. Well, then how do you explain what happened with Job? See, now what you've done is you've just made one promise that's going to stand against another one. Or another statement in Scripture. Well, what do you do with Paul? Um, tell him tell him that how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Who said that? God. See, when, when, when you take a verse like that and you go, oh man, that just makes me feel so good. And you just leap right out of the passage, you leap right over Jeremiah's intention, and you run to what your meaning is, and then you apply it however you want. Guys, that's scary, because what we just did is we just left God's word that he intended to be clear. And we just communicated to everybody hearing us that I'm not really interested in what Jeremiah wrote, what God intended to write through Jeremiah. I'm more interested in my own imagination and thoughts that go along with it. And guys, you shouldn't be... Don't teach people then if you handle God's word that way. Don't do it. Stay there. Lock yourself in. Put your seatbelt on and strap yourself to Jeremiah 29 and don't leave until you figure out what the context is telling you. So watch yourself and watch each other when you uh, want to explain one text by quickly turning to another. Okay? We all love... One of the first things you, you unfortunately learn to do when you're studying is you learn to cross-reference. 
And one of the first, Smed told me about this last year with the guys in H3 as they preached. He works with them. He works with them to stay in this passage. We're going to break down in the phrases, and, and this one modifies that one, and then there's another one that actually modifies this one. And so it's kind of this chain and Paul of how he's modifying. He's, he's making them stay right here, and then they start to preach. And they, they, the first statement they make about the first main point is they go, and let me help you understand this. Turn to, and, and Smell's like, what are you doing? See, it's not an issue of should you cross-reference, it's an issue of what? When you cross-reference. Keep your seatbelt on, strap yourself down in the passage, and don't leave it so quickly to think, oh, that word, I know what he means by that because he used that over in uh, Philippians. And the minute for, and so now you're determined, you're taking a meaning in another passage and you're importing it into this one, and you know what? You might be right, and hopefully you will be. But it's no guarantee that you will be because Paul uses the same word different ways in different settings. Stay in your context. When you, when you watch one another do that, say, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, let, let's not do that yet. Let's stay right here. Let's see if we can observe a little bit more. And then turn and go, okay? Let me, can I give you an example of this? I did this um, last Sunday. Go to Ephesians 4. You know how tricky it was with Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24, the, the, to put off and to put on. Um, there's actually a passage in Paul that makes it so, uh, it makes it clearer. And it would have been so easy right away to just go, hey, no, wait a minute, let's turn to Colossians 3, and let me tell you what actually is going on here. But that, number one, I would have modeled for you that which you should not do. And we actually then missed what the riches of what Paul was actually saying in Ephesians 4. Um, when he says in verse 22, I taught you to put off the old man and to put on the new man, and we talked about how those are not ongoing commands for Christians, even though the NAS makes it look like it is. Colossians 3, look over there at verse 8. It's a different form, it's a different structure entirely, but it, it gets the point across. But now you also put them all aside. Put these sins aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So indeed, we are supposed to put off something as Christians in an ongoing way, right? Well, look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because there was this ultimate putting off that you already did. Since you laid aside the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed. You see, so it would have been easy to jump out of the passage, go to another one to explain it. Don't do that. But I eventually did go to Colossians 3, and I did it at the end. Because I wanted you to see confidently that we don't have to leave Ephesians 4 to get the meaning and understand what it's saying. Stay there, and then cross-reference later. Okay? Number seven. Progressive revelation. Oh, my favorite. Number seven. Progressive revelation. And we'll take a quick break after this one, Okay? When you're interpreting, you have to keep in mind that Revelation came in a series. It came in a, in a progression. Okay, God revealed his truth over an extended period of time. He didn't just all dump out of Genesis 1, everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. There it all is. Dump truck, back up, all of it's out in front of you. No, God, for whatever reason, determined to do it in successive stages. I'm going to give you a little bit here. And I'm going to give you a little bit more here. 
And I'm going to give you a little bit more here. And you know what? It's meaningful to those of you that I wrote to here. You have everything you need that I want you to have to be mine, Abraham. And Moses, I gave you a little bit more than what Abraham had. And you have everything that you need as you live in this period of history to be pleasing to me. Now, whether or not you respond to it and reply, you know, that's a whole other issue. David, I'm going to give you a little bit more. More promises are coming out. I made promises to Abraham, and then there was blessings and curses in the law with Moses, and some things that were unfolded there with a temple or a tent, and, and God dwelling in that tent. And, and now, now there's promises about a, a son of David who, that David, you have everything that you need in this season of life to live in, my season of redemptive history, to be mine, to be saved, to be forgiven, to live before me in a pleasing way. And then a little bit more. John the Baptist gets born. Jesus is born. Goes through. Paul. You see, for whatever reason, God wanted to do it in stages. It progresses. Okay? That means, in Genesis, you can't assume that, as you read Abraham, that Abraham knew and understood everything that Paul wrote. So that's exactly his point. Look down The fact that God's revelation has grown more detailed over time means we must avoid the trap of reading later revelation back into earlier revelation. There is a phrase or a statement that um, I think is potentially dangerous. It is reading the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Reading the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. I think that's dangerous. I know what it's trying to say. It's trying to say... You can't just read the Old Testament as if there is not, what? A New Testament. I understand that, and that's right. But to say I'm going to put lens on in the New Testament and I'm going to read the Old Testament, if I mean by that and I do things with the Old Testament then, and I import into the Old Testament things that were going on in the New Testament that weren't going on in the Old Testament, that's wrong. And so you have to be very careful with that. For example, in Genesis 12:3, God said he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, in Galatians 3, God revealed that part of that blessing is salvation by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. It might be a mistake to assume that Abraham understood all of that when God gave him the promise in Genesis 12. Only as Revelation progressed did God unveil the specifics of his plan. Okay? So did Abraham understand in Genesis 12:3 everything that Paul said in Galatians 3, 6-9? No. So don't teach Genesis 12.3 like he did. Teach it like he understood what he was told. Because that's what God intended to do, was to give us a little bit. Teach it there. If you stop there, put a period at the end of it in your sermon, and you never get to Jesus in your teaching, well, that's wrong. That's not helpful. you got to get to Jesus. But how you do it is what? Everything. Don't try to look for ways of putting Jesus in the passage when he's not there. In your teaching, put Jesus in your teaching. My friend Rick Holland says, um, Jesus should be in every sermon. Is he in every text? We, that needs qualification, yes and no. But the, he has to be in every sermon, but he may not be in Genesis 12.3 in the way that you think he is because of what Galatians 3 says. 
You've got to be very careful. Take your time. Teach the passage where it is at. And then push yourself forward in your sermon to further revelation that comes. Okay? Listen, do you, you don't read present events in your life that happen now back into your past. Those of you guys who are married and you have a, a wonderful relationship with your wife, you don't interpret your past history before you had a wife as if you, she was there. So if we don't do that with our own lives, why do we want to do You don't do that with God. Okay? You remember your past, your singleness as it was, and you teach it and you tell the story as if it as it actually was. And then history progresses in your life. Turn the page. When studying Old Testament passages, we must take care not to read into them more than the author could have known. Once we have established the author's meaning in his historical context, it is appropriate to fill that out with later revelation. However, these two steps must be kept separate. Let me give you a great example. Um, church historians, uh, church uh, in the past, great leaders of the church, because they read in the New Testament church, 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 called out God's people, the body, the church. When they go to the Old Testament and they read about Israel, they go, uh, and so the church, Israel, was blah, 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 blah. Will you find the word church in the Old Testament? You won't. So that is importing a New Testament idea and putting it someplace where historically it didn't exist. Paul made it very clear that um, nobody knew this until Paul and the New Testament prophets. So, and that's what this quote that I gave you this morning was so important about. Okay? The ultimate goal is still to produce biblical theology yet to unite the Testaments at the proper moment. At the proper moment. At the proper moment. Okay? All right. Let's take a break and we will come back to um, understand it yourself, but I just think it's important enough for us to talk about together, and I appreciate your questions. They're very good questions. Um, Let's talk about number eight, interpretation versus application. We've already talked about this already in some of the principles, but um, we need to touch on it specifically this way. There is a difference, and a lot of it is just people being sloppy with their words, what what they mean especially by the word mean. There is a difference. Interpretation finds the meaning of the original author that was intended. That's so important. The meaning the original author intended. Guys, the phrase that you want to get just stamp on your brain so that it's there all the time is authorial intent. Authorial intent. The intent of the author. The intent of the author. That's where meaning is found, in the intent of the author. In his historical situation, the application is the various ways that one meaning can be lived out today. Very, very, very important. For example, Jesus said, love one another, right? Now watch the words that he uses in his example, because it's very important. A wife might say, watch this, well, that means I need to love my husband better. However, is that really the meaning? If it is, her husband is going to have some trouble fulfilling that command because he doesn't have a husband. So what has she been sloppy with? The word means. Okay? What she should have said is, 
the way I apply that is I need her to love my husband. Right? Do you see the difference? She just didn't use the word mean in the right way. If that is the meaning, that wife might get upset when other women in the church try to love her husband better too. <laughs> so you can see the point. The meaning of John 15, 12, that's where he was quoting that, is a command for the disciples to exhibit a self-sacrificial concern for others. Now you might be, in a, he's, he's right in saying this, you might be able to stretch that to apply to how a wife is to relate to her husband. However, the application is definitely not the meaning of the passage. You'd have to ask yourself, even in the application of that, is that really what Jesus meant at that point, at that night, in John 12, or heading into John 12 last night, that he wanted Christian disciples, disciples of his, to love their wives? Was that his intent? Now, does Jesus want us to love our wives? Yes. We, I'm not trying to say don't love your wives, but is that really what he was saying there? You, you might even want to constrain your application of love in some different ways, but that's for another subject to talk about. Interpretation and application must always be kept separate. Underline that, mark that. Guys, interpretation and application must always be kept separate. This is one of the biggest disciplines when you study, is to not push interpretation too soon into your thinking. When I study a passage, um, I am trying to gear my mind first and most, first and most to first and most to just what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying? What, is, what does Paul mean? Paul has something he's trying to get across. What does Paul mean? And at the same time, application will come into my mind. Oh my goodness, the implication of this on my life or on the church's life. You know what I do? I'll take that on another piece of paper and I'll just start writing out applications. But I purposely keep them in a different spot. I don't push that into my exegesis and therefore this means that I need to... I don't put it there. I just put it off the side. Because first things first... What does it mean? What does it mean? Interpretation and application must always be kept separate. Here's one way to do that. Let's assume you're studying Romans 12, 1 to 2. A way that you could keep the two separate is to rewrite in your own words these two, uh, those two verses and start every sentence with the words, Paul said, Paul said, Paul said. See, what you're doing when you do that is you're saying, I'm, I'm paying attention to who? Paul. What Paul meant was important. I'm going I'm to start there. I'm not going to end there. If all I say at the end is, Paul said this, let's close in prayer. Well, you know, we didn't go where we needed to go. We need to get to application. Um, Scott, can I? Yeah, please. Um, I haven't heard you say much about the Greek as, yeah. I mean, am I kind of getting too far ahead of it? I always, and I am not good with Greek, but at least I know how to go and get a uh, definition of uh-huh. the word. Like you talked about love, which there's four different loves in the Greek. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of feel like that if I'm really wanting to get the right interpretation of a verse on how to love someone, I need to go to Greek and see which love they use there to be able to apply that. Yeah. That, that, that kind of a thing is, is really helpful to do. Um, obviously, the more that you can know the original languages, the more you're going to be able to do on your own and the less you'll have to rely on somebody else, like a commentator. Um, so it is a good thing. And, and the way that it is today, guys, you don't have to like 
take Greek for two years or Hebrew for two years necessarily to really be able to interact with Hebrew or Greek. There's tools now that are, are purposely been designed for guys who are English-only guys, but it makes the Greek more accessible. And so you're able to, and the Hebrew more accessible, you're able to interact a lot more now than you were able to before. Especially electronically, uh, there's, there's actually a lot of options. It's really good. Um, that being said, you still, there are some words that mean only one thing in one place, or are one thing everywhere they occur. For instance, I think the, the phrase old man, the old self, means the same thing wherever you see it. In other words, that means it's a technical term. That anytime a, 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 an author throws it out there and uses it, it doesn't mean one thing here and a different thing there. On, on the other side, there are other words like the word flesh. We'll talk about this in a minute in the word study on the next page. Um, there, the word flesh might mean one thing here, and the word might be used a different way there. And I think it's true that even though there are four different words, or uh, primarily three that you see used most um, with love, in the Greek, you you still need to let each context determine it because, like, when uh, you just got to be careful. So it's helpful to go to the Greek, and, and you always when we get to word study over on the next page, we'll talk about how you let the context determine what the word means. Okay. Um, so I think it's helpful if you can get some Greek, get some Hebrew under your belt, or, or be able to interact with some, or get some tools that enable you to interact more um, with it. Still let your context determine what your meaning of a word is. Um, does that answer for now? Yeah. Okay. Um, when we get over to the word study part, if, if there's something that I'm missing, that's, that you're gonna, you might ask again, and we'll, we'll round it out some more. The only reason I ask that is because I haven't heard you say that, and I don't know if you're trying to maybe steer us away from trying to take on something more than we have the ability to do? No, I'll tell you, the reason, that's now I understand more what you're saying, and I can explain to you why this doesn't, hasn't yet lead us to the Greek, and it's not going to. Um, Joel, when he wrote this, as I told you, he's a pastor in South Africa, and the guys only have about an eighth grade education, and English is their primary language, and they will never probably go into the Greek or the Hebrew. And so his point is to equip them to handle the English well. And I, I want you to be encouraged that if you have, a, if you have, uh, Smith and I were just talking at the beginning before we started, if you have uh, like the NAS and the ESV and you just use those two versions and you watched as, put them side by side in the passage you're studying and watch where they differ. Oh, why did they translate? Why did the ESV do that when NAS did this right there? That's an issue. So pay attention to it. Try to get to the bottom of it. Spend some time observing why they translated it this way, but NAS went that way, because that's always where the issues are. And so you can get so much. We have, praise God that we have excellent, excellent um, English translations. Um, and yes, if you want to do a little bit more, we can help you with that too. Okay. All right. Let's keep going on here. Uh, has to be kept separate. Start every sentence with words like Paul said, Paul said. Make sure you write only what Paul actually said to the Romans in that verse. Stay there. That is the interpretation. That is the meaning, right? And then from that interpretation, you can develop appropriate what? 
applications for your present situation. For example, now watch this. Watch this wrong approach with Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world. And watch again how, tell me if you see, just, just watch how this is one big, fluid, fuzzy movement, this wrong approach. Watch. Well, to me, that means we shouldn't watch television. In fact, this verse means all television is evil. If you want a television, you're not a Christian. That's what Paul said in Romans, you know. <laughs> now, again, horrible, sloppy use of the word means. Okay? Watch the right approach and watch two steps. Watch two movements that take place. Interpretation, which is the meaning. Paul said the Roman believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living unbelievers do. Application. Something that influences me to think like an unbeliever is watching television. To keep from being conformed to worldly thinking, I should be more discerning about what I watch on television or even avoid watching television altogether. Somebody might conclude. Okay? So you see two movements. You can see where one started and where it ended and then the next one started. The first one is just this. Well, that means to me, but we're going to just go out. But that's, that's where you want to stay away from that. So interpretation, what Paul said, and what he meant by what he said, is distinct from how you are to act based on what he said. One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. Just make sure you're actually finding the one meaning of the text before you start apply, uh, multiplying applications. Okay. Number nine, grammar and syntax. Grammar is just the, the use of words and the relationships. Uh, and syntax is how they are related to one another, how words relate to one another, how phrases relate to one another, how clauses relate to one another. A verse does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. God constrained his idea that he wanted to get out. He constrained it to, uh, constrained it to the rules of language. Okay? It might be qualified by the context, but the real meaning of the text is found in what the passage says according to the normal use of language. And I would even add the normal use of language for the author. Um, because Peter writes with a little different vocabulary than Paul does, and Paul writes a little bit different than the writer of Hebrews, unless you think he's the author of Hebrews and whatnot. Let me give an example of, of how you go to Ephesians 1. I'll give you two examples from Ephesians to let you see that grammar and syntax, make, it's important to pay attention to. How words are used in the relationship to one another. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 4. And you can see the, the, the confusion in verse 4 and the question in verse 4 and by the way that it's written. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Is your in love hanging there on the end of verse 4? Period before it, but then in love? And then you have verse 5. Do any of you have a version where they actually put in love in verse 5? Because that would not be heresy to do that. It's an interpretive decision. It's a translational decision. But but we don't know what to do with that in love because it, it seems funny to us Grammatically, that he chose us in him so that we would be holy and blameless before him. I get that. Holy and blameless in his presence. Holy and blameless in love. Well, that seems awkward to me. So that must... Oh, but you know, look. He 
He predestined us. Oh, in love. Oh, in fact, that really helps me with predestination with my people because, that I talk to because they think God is so unloving when he predestinates. So in love, he predestined us. See, isn't that nice? But you know what? If you pay attention to the way that Paul uses prepositional phrases, especially in chapter one, his prepositional phrases, in love, like that, in him, he always uses them following. They come after the main verbal idea that came before it. They never introduce a new verbal idea. Okay? So what he is actually saying, there should be no period, in my opinion, after him, and in love should be modifying or describing what is in front of it. He wants us to be holy and blameless. We are to be holy and blameless in his presence before him. And when he thinks of your holiness and your blamelessness, all of that is soaked in love. He never thinks of your holiness. He never thinks of your blamelessness before him without also just thinking of his love and who he is as a loving God. Now, that's a very different meaning than if you say, in love he predestined us. Grammar matters, guys. It matters. You're going to end up changing meanings if you don't pay attention to grammar. The same thing happened, I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole thing with you, but chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. Um, infinitives, to put off, verse 22, to be renewed, verse 23, to, be, uh, to put on the new self, verse 24. You don't even see that represented in the um, NAS. I mean, it is cloaked and hidden and there. And it gives you a whole other sense. And then therefore, you walk away with a whole other meaning. That somehow today, I'm supposed to still put off my old self. And I'm to put on a new man. Um, well, that's not the way Paul treats those words anywhere else. And grammatically speaking here, it doesn't have to be that way. So... Um, it's a good example of why the church needs to have some men who can handle the original languages to help us. Um, it'll impact your meanings, your theology. Okay? So grammar and syntax matters. And by the way, that's pages 15 all the way to the end of this book. Is dealing with grammar and syntax. So if you want this book, I'll email it to you and you'll get all that grammar and syntax. Number 10, historical appropriateness. One of the great dangers a Bible student faces is reading a modern view of a word or concept into a biblical one. In other words, you see the word in Greek, ego, which means I am, or it's the word pronoun I. So Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, ego. Well, that sounds like what Freud talked about in terms of ego, because it is. And so a Christian, well-known Christian psychologist defines one of Paul's words for the mind in Romans in terms of the Freudian unconscious mind. However, the unconscious mind, the id, the superego, and so on, that's the manufacture of modern psychology. It is historically inappropriate to take those kinds of terms and meanings and push them back into Paul's statements. And there's a, there's a, a phrase for that. It's called totality transfer. You're totally transferring into that word back then contemporary 21st century meaning into a 1st century word. The Freudian concept of human beings simply didn't exist in Paul's day. Always make sure your interpretation is appropriate to the historical situation of the text. Um, let me give you another example that I heard last year. Luke chapter 10, 
Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he says in Luke chapter 10, verse 4, carry no money belt. No bag, no shoes, greet no one on the way. Okay? Last year in the spring of 2009, um, the, Rick Warren gave a, um, an interview on what his church is doing uh, for missions. I think it was on short, short-term missions trips. And he, he made a very, very helpful observation about what most short-term missions do. Christians from the rich West go to the poor other places of the world and they give lots of money. And they just pour money into something, into a community where there's no money, big nice building goes up or whatever, they, they, they do something nice and then they leave. And that's caused much more damage to the people than it has actually helped them. And that's our setting today, and that is true. And what Rick Warren did in the interview is he said, you know, after all, Jesus said in Luke 10, 4, take no money. So see, we haven't even been obeying Jesus' words. So what he has done is he's done totality transfer. He's looked at his contemporary situation, and he's seen the damage that we cause when we with money in the West, in the Christian church, go to places in other parts of the world where they don't have money, and we give money, we take money in our money belts with us, and we and we give, and it causes problems. And he takes all of that concept, and he brings it back, and he squeezes it into Jesus' words in Luke 10.4. And that is wrong, because is that what Jesus meant? And if you're going to do that with 10.4 and say, uh, take no money belt, uh, don't take a bag. I want to know, does Rick Warren tell people not to wear any shoes? And I want to know, does he, does he tell them, I say, travel, don't talk to anybody. Don't greet anyone on the way. I mean, wh- where are you going to pick and choose on this? You see how willy-nilly that is? I mean, I, the, the authority of what it means isn't found here. It's found here in my head from what I've dealt with over here. And I impose that back on a sloppy. Don't do that. Also, you have to be careful from not totally transferring a meaning in our day back into the text. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a picture. Here, let's say this period right here in front of you is a Greek New Testament time period where they speak Koine Greek. <clears throat> um, we always think of totally transferring and stuff from here. That language is dead now to us. But we think of taking that and importing a meaning back here. Well, actually, before Koine Greek, there was a kind of Greek before that. It was classical Greek. And there's all kinds of words that were used then that are in common with Koine Greek, but they had different meanings then, even before. And so when you're looking like at a, a word dictionary and you're looking up a Greek word, it'll say in classical Greek, it meant blah, 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 blah. And in the New Testament, it means blah, 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 blah. And you'll be like, wait a minute, that's not the same as that. But oh man, that's really cool. and then so you tell everybody that's what this word here in the New Testament means it's not so you can't do that that's why context 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 determines meaning okay yes Um, so like from Greek exegesis like if you're going to take a path or go take it out of school or something like that Mm -hmm. um Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, like the Odyssey and all those things they use to, to study that, isn't, isn't that classical Greek? Or is that the what? Like, or the Iliad. Um, yeah, that's classical. 
So, the, so why did it take you in the classical Greek to study Greek instead of? Is that just a bad class? Like you want to steer away from a class like that? Or? No, I mean, if you go to ASU and you're going to take Greek, they're going to teach you where Greek and how it existed classically. Koine. If you go to a seminary that specifically wants to teach you to study and teach and preach, you're not going to get classical. Oh. But when you're dealing with lexicons, dictionaries that tell you what words mean, um, and commentaries, my favorite commentary in um, Ephesians, he does this, he tells you, he he's a scholar with words, with, with the Greek, and so he he says in classical the word had this range of meaning and and in the New Testament it has this range of meaning. In Paul, here, in this context, it means and so I browse through and I go, Okay, classical, that's good. Oh, okay. Oh, and Jesus used the word this way and Luke used it in that way. But ah, here's what I really want to pay attention to. It's how Paul meant it in this passage. I want to know what he thinks about that. And whether I buy it or not, what he's selling, I don't know. But I want to know what he thinks. So it's just to give you a range of meaning and watch how a word evolved over time um, and its meaning. Um, so just be careful. Yeah. Has anybody told Rick Warren that Jesus specifically rescinded that command? Yeah. In Luke 22? <laughs> yeah, when he uh, said, now go out and take money? Yeah, yeah no. So that's actually, that's, that's, that's really that. great point, John. <laughs> <laughs> go Maybe you can send him an email. Send him a letter. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number 11, word study. To understand a passage of Scripture, key words within that passage must be defined accurately as illustrated just above. To do this, it is helpful to consider the other uses of that word in Scripture. Yes. Now, here's what you do. You come to, let's say you come to old man, the, the phrase old man in Ephesians 4. Here's what you do. Is you study that in Ephesians 4, right there. Okay? You stay right there. You let that determine as much as you possibly can its own meaning. Then the next thing you do is you move out in concentric circles. Stay with Paul, if you can, and now go to one of his other letters that Paul wrote. Romans 6. Colossians 3. <coughs> and then you go to those concentric circles. And then you go, did Peter ever use this term? Let's go see. But see, now as you move out, that, that speaks actually with less authority and influence on your original context term. So you stay close. The, what has the most authority on what a word means is the immediate context it's in. That's king. Then you go to the princess. Not princess. Prince. Men, plural. <laughs> princess, okay? You go to the next ones. And that's Paul's other context in which he uses that language. They don't have as much authority on that passage as the king does. And then you move out to the nobles. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And what's, this is what's so dangerous about cross-referencing too soon. Is you can go run over to a nobleman or a peasant. Oh, and here's a... This makes sense to me. So what Paul meant was... Really? You can't trump the king with the peasant. Okay? Now, if you need help, you start looking at other ones. Okay? And sometimes that is... And oftentimes it's very helpful, but you just do it in the right order the right way. Okay? So you can accomplish much... Um, by doing so. Um, he also says that an Old Testament background on a word is important. And why is that important? 
Because, for instance, the word priest in Luke 1 5 doesn't just all of a sudden plop in out of nowhere with no prior connected, uh, no connectivity. You need to understand maybe what the Old Testament word for priest was. Because you know that as Luke's writing, he's not talking about uh, a pagan priest. And so you need to pay attention to the, the alignment between the Old Testament word as well. And guys, you can do a ton just by having a good, get a good um, word dictionary, English word dictionary. Don't get a, uh, um, don't get one that doesn't have religious terms in it. Get a collegiate style dictionary or get one online or use whatever you can find online that's good that doesn't do funny things with old words that mean something. And there are some where they've bitten into this whole postmodern thing that, you know, the word doesn't really mean that. Here's what we think it means. Um, don't, don't get into that kind of a, of a tool, but if you get a good old-style dictionary... And then you have like a concordance that you can go to and you can look up and follow where the word is used in different places. You can develop some really good range of meanings. See, oh, the word uses, the word kind of moves back and forth between this kind of a period of space. Uh, Now, so I know in this passage, I have to find a meaning that stays in between there. Now, which one is it? It can't mean all of that, but I got to find what it means right here. Okay, so you work hard to, to try to do that. Um, let me give you an example. Romans 8.29. Go to Romans 8.29. 8.29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. That's the word I want you to pay attention to. He also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. If you were trying to figure out, okay, now what does Paul mean by the word called here? And you're like, oh, I remember reading Jesus in Matthew. Go to Matthew 22 now. Oh, I saw this word. I remember I read this just the other day. Matthew 22, verse 14. I'm going to cross-reference. This is so great. Cross-reference is awesome. My Bible study leader does this all the time. He's my hero. Jesus said right here, many are called, but few are chosen. That, let me see. How does that tell me what Paul meant back in... Well, wait a minute. Many are called, but only a few are chosen. Wait a minute. It says here he predestined them and then he called them and then he justified them. Wait a minute. Yeah. Jesus is king. Paul is the peasant. See, I mean, context determines what a word means. Let me give you another example. John chapter 1. No, no, no. We'll say that one. Go to um, Galatians 5, verse 16. I'll go backwards this time. We'll start with Paul and then we'll go back to Jesus, or to at least the gospel, John. Uh, Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Ooh, a contrast. The Spirit, good. The flesh, bad. Right? Because the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, 
the deeds of the flesh, verse 19 and so forth, he starts talking about what they are. He's not talking about this. He's talking about your nature, that sinful nature that Paul calls your flesh. Um, because he talks about over in chapter 5, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look, I don't care what you say, your body was not crucified with Christ. Because you were here. So something fleshly was crucified. It's Paul using, I think, flesh in the same way he used old man. Okay, so here you've got an example of what flesh is. Okay? Uh, your, your sinful passions, your desires that are against God. Now go to John chapter 1. Famous verse, verse 14. Cross-referencing again. This is so awesome. <laughs> So helpful. My people are going to be so blessed when they hear me read this next. <laughs> Sorry. That sarcasm is not helpful. Do <laughs> forgive me for that. I don't, I don't want to be... Cross-referencing is good. Do it at the right time, in the right way. Verse 14. The Word became flesh? Oh, no. <laughs> Please don't tell me you did. <laughs> Obviously, John is using flesh differently than the way Paul was using flesh in Galatians 5. In fact, Paul uses flesh in this way here in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Each context determines what the word means. Okay? Don't import another meaning into a text until you've done your work in a present context and then be very careful to make sure that it's being used in the same way by the other author to show that, okay? And for instance, there are some words that are called technical terms where wherever you see them, they mean the same thing all the time. And that's where I think a word like, or a phrase like old man means the same thing every time you see it. You don't have to worry about who uses it. It means the same thing every time, okay? One last Principle, checking principle. Holy cow. I have no trouble talking, do I? God be merciful to you. It's good for a student to check his understanding of a passage against the interpretations of Bible scholars from the ages of Christianity. It is impossible for us to know all the geographic, historical, and inter interpretational issues in a passage. Information Bible scholars spend a lifetime accumulating. Bible dictionaries, commentaries, and other Bible study tools can shorten the process from a lifetime to five minutes, and that is a true statement, especially electronically these days. Um, notice that this principle is last on the list. And there's a reason for that. As a rule, it's best to do your own study on a passage and then compare it with someone else's. Sometimes you'll need to use Bible dictionaries and commentaries early in the process to get a handle on a certain word or a theological concept. That's advisable. Do that. However, avoid the trap of opening a commentary and reading it as if it were the Bible. Okay? Work on a passage all you can, looking at specific words or concepts you don't understand. Once you've done all you can to process a text, then use good commentaries to fill in the gaps or correct errors. Rather than read the results of someone else's analysis, analyze the passage yourself. You'll understand the message of the text and you'll apply it better. Now, a point I would put as a qualification in here is 
Use commentaries this way. It doesn't go against what he's saying, but it maybe adds something he's not saying. Use commentaries this way. Your whole point as you're looking and you're studying is you are observing the text. I want to observe the text. And I'm going to sit there and do that. Sometimes it's really helpful if someone looks over your shoulder and looks at the text that you're looking at. And that's what a commentary does. So open a commentary and say, hey, help me observe the text, okay? And you're looking at the text, and he says, and so this phrase cannot be modifying that. It has to be modifying this. You go, huh. Well, let me look at what I've been observing. Yeah, I don't see that. Or, oh my goodness, I never saw that. You're absolutely right. And so you're not taking wholesale what the commentator says, but you're he's helping you observe the text. He's your friend. Some commentators are far more friendly and helpful to you than others. <laughs> Some of them are just downright dangerous. And Sven and I can help you with good names. And you primarily go after names of guys. Commentary sets that are written by 40 different guys, um, edited by one, uh, you're going to find it's just going to be pick and choose. It's like going to the store and picking out tomatoes. You don't just grab all of them. You're like, ooh, I don't want that one. It's a worm in that one. That's right. Don't take that one. <laughs> it's the same thing in commentary sets. So you look for good sets, yes, but you also look for names. If a guy's name is good, like Don Carson, you buy everything he has ever commented on. <laughs> D. Edmund Heber, you buy everything he has ever commented on. John Stott, you buy every... That's not because he's infallible or any of these guys are infallible, but, oh my goodness, you don't have to labor to fight against what he's saying all the time to find the one nugget. There's nuggets everywhere. You just got to... It's a difference when you're sitting there and you got a pile of gold in front of you and you got seven rocks in it. And you go, I don't want that rock. You're not, You're just grabbing gold, man. You're just putting it in your pockets and, oh, rock, get down out of here. It's a different thing when a guy's got a pound, a massive pile of rocks, and there's like three nuggets in it. Oh, man, this is a mess. We're, oh, I just threw that away. You know, that's the difference between a good commentary and a bad commentary. So use the checking principle. It will save your interpretational life, but don't become so commentary dependent that, you're, that you never develop your own ability to interpret Scripture. Okay, you can do more than you think. That's true. The 12 principles just covered apply to the study of all of the scripture. There are, however, some specific principles that will help you when you're studying Old Testament poetry, like Psalms and Proverbs, and biblical narrative, which is the story sections of scripture, like Genesis, 1 Samuel, and Acts. And the following six pages detail those principles. If you had those, you would see five tips for interpreting biblical narrative, parallel structure of Hebrew poetry, etc. Okay? Scott. Yes. Um, Matt Dodd a couple months ago passed on that to, to me about observations and commentaries and how that's one of the most helpful things. And that's been really good for me as I've been studying the Bible for long and other things. And one of the things I just want to call out is that you have to, in order to do that well, you need to understand the difference between commentators observing and commentators interpreting. Um, and you need to be able to hold those two things separately. Um, and even if you've got an interpretation that you may not want to follow somebody all the way into where they went with the text, you can still look at their observations and benefit from those. Very good. Um, and that means, first and foremost, in our own minds and in our own study, we need to tell the difference between our own observations and our own interpretations and then watch other people do that as well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good, John. And you'll find some guys, you'll feel, you'll feel badly because you'll be like, man, his observation was amazing in the text, and he has absolutely loopy conclusions he draws. But if you like the observation and you're trying to help people make observations, use it. Just don't use his conclusion. 
Okay? You can do that. Um, so, anyway. Now, when you're studying a passage, do you sit down and you have a separate little piece of paper beside you and it has 12 rules and you go, okay, now here's my passage. Number one, clarity of scripture. Okay, let me do that. So number one, done. Check that off. Number two, okay. Is that what you do? No, these things, you refresh your mind with them so much and you, you go over these kinds of things that it's just kind of fluidly happening as you're in it. And it takes time to practice that. You don't have to think of the seven things that you do from getting your toothbrush to putting it on the electric thing to putting the toothpaste on to putting it underwater to going back and forth. You don't think about all this. It just happens, right? <coughs> the more you do this, these kinds of rules for interpretation, they just happen. But not without you practicing. You ever teach a, your little one to brush his teeth? Oh, my goodness. It's like they you know, pick it up and hold it like this. No. Put it, no, don't grab that. Put it like the, no, I'll put it on. No, you don't put it on your nose. Put, I mean, it's like you're going to feel that way with these rules as you as you you know get started. You're going to feel clunky, but after a while of doing it over and over and over and over, and you refresh your mind with them, and, and you know like have your morning devotions in these things. You, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But you're going to be far more comfortable with just letting them be a part of your study process. Okay, and thus concludes our time together this morning, and our year together. So um, this will whet, whet, this will whet your appetite for what goes on in H3. What I would like to um, do is tell you guys that if you have an interest, um, I'm already thinking, Tom's already thinking, uh, Eric and, and John and Matt are thinking of you guys, uh, of Guys, we want to make sure we really invite to be a part of H3. All of you guys have been very faithful. You've been, you've been, you know, very uh, diligent here. We're grateful for that. Um, but I want to hear from you too. It, you know, if you have a desire, you think you want to do H3. I'm not asking you today to commit and say yes. I absolutely, positively know my schedule next fall, and I do see that I have every week open at this period of time, and I can make that. I'm not asking for a full-blooded commitment right now. But if you think you're interested and you, yeah, and if anyone wants to be praying for you over the next couple of months before we send out the formal invitation, I want you to, to come up and tell me, say, hey, put me down for H3. I want to be considered for that. I, I'm very interested in that. Let me put your name down because I want to, I want to get that. I want to, I want to make sure that we're not missing you. Um, not that we would, but we're just so encouraged by what you guys are doing. But I want to hear from your own hearts, what's on your own heart about it. Um, if you're convinced that your life is at such at a season that you can't make that kind of commitment next year, well, I want to know that, okay? Um, so that I can be aware of that and not tempt you to take it if you shouldn't take it, okay? That makes sense? So come tell me if you want to be a part of H3. Also, tell me if um, you want me to email you this full document, 60 pages or so, okay? Tom, you do me a favor? Yes. Would you um, say anything you want to say and close in prayer? Uh, sure. Two things to say. See your uh, leader, either John, Eric, or Matt, before you leave. But give me a second to get them. Matt and John, give us some homework. They want to give back whatever homework is owed you. Thank you. Uh, this goes to Matt. That one goes to John. Uh, it's been a blessing for me just to be with you. Uh, is I know I 
as the elders talk about this, we are so encouraged by what we see in you men. So praise God for that. And that's it all. Father, I do thank you for Grace Bible Church. Father, I praise you for your just the grace that you have given us. Father, I praise you for what you are doing here. Lord, I lift up to you these men as well as the men of this church, Father, that you would be the type of man that would uh, just bring you glory. You would be the type of husband, Lord, that would bring you glory, the type of father or maybe even someday a father. Whatever the season may be, Father, I praise you for it. Lord, we look forward to see what you will do in the future with this church here in Tempe. Father, I thank you for your word, that we can know it, that you have given us minds, that you have just allowed us the grace of being able to have your word in a language that uh, we understand. Father, may you be glorified in everything we do this day and in the name of this day. And I pray I'll listen to your sons today. Eric or John or Matt, do any of you guys have anything you want to say? I, I have a practical question. Do you, do you uh, Scott and Tom, do you guys want us to collect the last homework? Yeah, if, you, if there's any homework that you guys have to hand in that hasn't been, go ahead and collect it and give it to your small group leaders. That's a good question. Okay. Matt, anything you want to say? Okay, so why don't you uh, just check in with your small group leader before you, you take off. Thanks so much, guys. Um, appreciate you very much.